listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette yes. radio show. And who do we have in the studio right now? Aaron Chapman. Who are you, Aaron Chapman? I'm a Vancouver writer and historian and a musician and an old friend of yours. And an author of a brand new book. Yes, I should say. Author of a brand new book in stores across BC and across Canada, available across Canada, called Vancouver After Dark. And Aaron, why did we play the Nipple Erectors? The Nipple Erectors was Shane McGowan from the Pogues band before he began the Pogues. It was in the late 70s, uh, and they put out uh, a couple, a few singles, and All the Time in the World is kind of my theme song. Every time I've been on your show, I, I we played that song, It's kind of so it's my theme song. Uh, almost, whenever I appear here. And I was confused at first. How many times have you been on the Nardwar show? Quite a few times. Oh. But basically, when you played the theme song last, when did you last play? What other books? Because recently you've been out for yes. your books. Could you explain your history with that song and books? Well, every, <laughs> well, every the last time I guess it would have been when would have been when the, for the reissue third edition anniversary edition of the Penthouse book, Liquor Lust and the Law, when I was here with Danny Filipponi from the Penthouse. Prior to that, I think we did something on Last Gang in Town, my book about East Vancouver street gangs in the 1970s and what the police did, f- organizing a secret gang squad to go after them. Uh, I did uh, Live at the Commodore in 2015. I was definitely on then. Uh, and then when the Pe- Penos book first came out, 2012. But then pre-2012, between 1992, when I first walked into CITR here at the uh, University of British Columbia, till then, there must have been – we did a bunch of things together then. A.O. Chaman, the A.O. best Chapman, voice yes. in radio. Oh, you're too kind. Yeah, you and you said that, and I almost got a job at the CBC on the basis of you saying that alone because David Wisdom and Leora Cornfield loved, loved that line. And some. people can actually see that clip live, can't yes. they? Yes, yes. It's all there. It's all. It's all, every, I everything's sent online you an now. isolated clip of your performance. Could, could you explain? That was at the West Fan Community yes. Center. Yeah. A gig my band, the Evaporators, played. Yes. You joined us on stage, on stage. to sing "Ao," the best voice in radio. Because, because at the time, I was playing in a band called the Real Mackenzies, which are still around today. But I was an original member of that band, so I came up and did. And was who else was on that band? Was it Seaweed and the Hanson Brothers? Exactly. Yeah. And the Smugglers. And the Smugglers, of course. Yeah. And so that was that was really fun. And and. And uh, there was a girl there I ended up dating for a couple. Uh, I don't know if my, that show somehow triggered in her mind that I was okay, but I thank you for that because I ended up going out with, with her for a couple years. I think. And I think that <laughs> night, Dave met Nico Case, and oh. the rest is history. Oh, wow. But that was at the West Van Rec Center. I didn't know Nico was there because I, I She met was Nico. a go go dancer. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, geez, I thought I would have remembered that. Uh, for. Girl trouble, but she was at that gig because she traveled with seaweed. Oh, I see. And Dave Carswell's house was basically the backstage right. for that community center gig. Oh my gosh! Well, Nico and I are still pals, but I didn't know she was there that night. I, I realized uh, I would have maybe you know crossed paths with them, but but uh, but I still keep in touch with her today, and she's a very dear friend of mine. So yeah. now that gig, West Fan Community Center, yes. Welcome to My Castle. We did a Welcome song with Evaporators. It was a purple poster. Exactly. It was a purple and yellow poster. I still I could see it in my mind's eye. That was at the West Fan Community Center. Yeah. Now, this new book you've written, yes. Vancouver After Dark, it isn't really related to community centers, is it? No. It you had to be kind of, what exactly was your criteria? You haven't included community centers exactly. It's no. basically drinking, isn't it? <laughs> I, you know, the book is about nightclubs that aren't around in Vancouver anymore and the history of Vancouver nightlife and Vancouver entertainment. Now, no one book, th- that, especially one that's only 250 pages, 
you know, some plus 250 pages, could somehow encapsulate all because there's all sorts of after-hours places, all-ages places, restaurants, other theaters, that you can't write a book about everything that's happened after sundown in Vancouver. But this focuses on places that were not just bars and watering holes, but places that had live entertainment or some kind of entertainment, you know, later when DJs and some of that stuff comes around. But it's a, it's a focus on everybody remembers... You know, every generation, you know, older folks of a certain age in Vancouver probably remember Izzy's or The Cave or, or uh, uh, Oil Can Harry's. And then people, other people remember The Smiling Buddha and The Town Pump. And other people remember Love Affair. It's like every generation in Vancouver remembers a place that they went to that isn't around anymore and that we're still talking about. There's still people today. The cave's been gone since 1981. But people still talk about that. It's like, oh, what a great place that was. I saw this show there. I saw that show. Some major talent came through this town. Through those years, we were kind of spoiled that way. But the key thing is Vancouverites went to these places, and this is where we met. And the, even though the fact these things, when these things disappear, when these places are gone, whether they're, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the Palomar Ballroom on Alberni that was torn down in the 1950s, or, it's, or uh, Richards on Richards or Graceland and Love Affair in the, in the last, maybe, you know, the last 20 years when, those, when it went, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, so the DNA of the city changes a little bit. So we're kind of sorry to see them going. I think now's a good time to look back and see what we kind of lost along the way. There's still a nightlife going on. I, a lot of people say this is no fun city, and, there's, and it sucks now, and it's, I disagree with that. We can get to that later maybe. But it's the fact that these places are gone. We, we, we have lost something in Vancouver because of that. That's, that's a lot about what the Well, the West Van Community Center is gone. Oh, yes. It's gone. Yeah. So you decided not to put the story of you meeting that girl in a book. I should have. You know, I could have. Uh, there's some places even like, you know, I was talking with uh, Grant Lawrence about the Savoy. The Savoy, there's a couple of places that arguably could have been in there. It's by no means an encyclopedia of every place that, that had. And I stopped somewhat at the Vancouver city limits because as soon as I cross the bridge and get into the North Shore or get into Burnaby or get into New West and Surrey, you know, that opens up. The book needs to be longer because then I have to consider all the other sort of neighborhood places as well. So th- it essentially it, it spotlights Vancouver. It, 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 it focuses on those places that were in, you know, within the city. for do, do other places merit mention or merit their own history? Of course they do. In fact, there's lots of places that were the gay bars. Amazing history of some of the gay nightlife places in Vancouver. And I wanted to work those in, and I started doing that in, a, in an earlier draft. And it, it just became so much, I thought, I think this deserves its own history, and it's probably something I'm going to tackle maybe down the line in a separate project that I'm thinking about. Did Arsenal so. Paul Press say 250 pages, that's it? No, they said write as much as you can or much as you want or however long you think it should be. Um, they are a, a local publisher here in Vancouver, and they publish a lot of amazing books. I, I'm, I'm very honored to uh, to be have my some of my stuff, uh, you know, all four of my books they've, they've put out. And they're really hardworking and, and, a, and a little sort of scrappy uh, publisher that's, uh, that puts out some great stuff and some award-winning books, and, and I'm happy to be one of them. And they basically said, write whatever you think should be the, uh, should be the length of it. You know, they were very supportive. If, uh, you know, had I delivered a 900-page book, I think they would have gone for it just because they, they, they're, uh, they're eager, they, they like the subject of Vancouver history as much as I do. So you're back on the Nardwar to Human Surveillance yes, radio am, show. A.O. Chowman. It is We're speaking to live to A.O. Chowman. Aaron Chowman. I call you A.O. Yes. because before all the books, yes. you were promotions director I was at in CITR. 1992, I was the uh, promotions director at CITR, and I wrote for Discorder magazine, and I wrote under the name A.O. Chapman because I wanted to – uh, I, I was I like the sort of H. L. Mencken, uh, you know the, those writers. I felt it more it would be more writerly. So I wrote a bunch of stuff as A. O. Chapman. And interesting enough, A. O. C. Those initials now. Well, there we go. You know the Democratic Party. Yes, there we the go. The squad. Yeah. <laughs> 
before that though, yes. what did you do? Because you got into UBC with a C plus average. <laughs> so did I. But you were throwing magazines in tree forts. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that was one of the uh, things I wrote for CITR that people still laugh about. No, I was I was a student here, and uh, in the old CITR, which was in the old sub building. Now we're in the brand new one, which is a marvelous marvelous a space. And the window of CITR looks out onto the campus and on the world here in 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 the in the new sub building, which is like an airport. Or something. It's so it's so fancy here. It's incredible. But yeah, I I, I was a student. I, I'm born and raised in Vancouver, and I I had been at Langara the year previous, and I'd gone to Point Grey High School in Caresdale prior to that. But I tra- I got into UBC, and I certainly did not have a 4.0 grade point average. We were laughing about that before the show. We were probably the last of the Oxford Dons that managed to get into the UBC with a C plus grade. I don't think I, I think I had a little bit higher than a C plus grade average, but it wasn't much. It, was, it certainly wasn't an A or a B plus. I'll tell you that. Now people laughed at the story of you chucking in a filthy mag yes. into a tree fort. Yes, it was of a, a kid. It was a story about finding a, a nudie mag. I don't even know if they make them anymore in this internet world of ours, uh, and finding it on the street and wondering how the hell it had got there, where it had come from, who had thrown it there, whatnot. And as I sort of picked it up and was sort of walking with this this amulet of filth uh, in my hands, I, I, I saw a tree fort and I threw it and it, like a three-point j- j- jump shot, it went right through the window of the tree fort and landed in there. And I thought, I'm going to pass it on. I'm going to, I'm going to pay it forward. And some kid is going to find this, and it's totally going to blow his mind. Now, it was a funny story, especially the way it was written. I don't know if I'm giving it as much justice in this explanation of it. But in 1992, I wrote it in a very sort of amusing way, and a lot of people uh, loved it. A lot of people. I bumped into a guy in the street, said, I re- and he said, "I read this crazy story in." Discorder about this guy that did, and it turns out he was tell, he was re- telling my own story back to me. Um, but they, but nowadays I don't know if you get arrested for that. I think now I would I would ha- I would not be allowed but to go anywhere it, near a children's playground. It did involve filth. It did involve and what filth. I find very interesting. And we've is talked about filth many times. There on was a lot of filth. Yeah. Ail Chaman live on the Nardwarda Human Serviette radio show. Ail Chaman, Aaron Chaman, author of Vancouver After Dark, The Wild History of... Vancouver's Nightlife. That's the subtitle of the book. Now, speaking of filth, Hugh Hefner had a show called... Oh, Playboy After Dark. Yes. Was there a connection? Vancouver After Dark, Playboy After Dark. <laughs> well, the whole theme... Filth. Of, yeah, the filth. The Did whole you theme- think of that? I, you know, it, it didn't dawn on me. You're the, you're, it's funny you mentioned it. And Nico Case actually gave me the DVD of Playboy After Dark, uh, which I have. Uh, I still have. And interestingly enough, the collectors... <laughs> Nico, if you're listening, thank you for that. The collectors were on Playboy After Dark right? the same night that Roman Polanski was on with... With, with, with who? Sharon Tate. Oh, with Sharon Tate's wife. So there oh, are yes, pictures yeah. of the collectors from Vancouver, oh, wow. Roman Polanski and I Sharon Tate. But the program was called in the 1960s Playboy After Dark. So I thought your book being called Vancouver After Dark yes. was an ode to filth <laughs> going back to the well, tree it, Well, it is because there's lots of filthy stories in the book, I must confess. There's lots of crazy. If there's one thing that you want to, when you get into the underbelly of Vancouver history, never mind the, the forestry companies that, that founded the province or the railway line that came out here and anything like that. that's the corporate history if you go to the bar and the nightclub history and the people that went to these places or even better yet the people that ran these places it's an amazing history and you find some of the craziest people that otherwise would have been arrested and sent to jail some of them were sent to jail and arrested but but fascinating uh, people and fascinating and you uh, tried to track down one of them danny basita yes danny basita is still alive in uh, of oil can harry's fame no and, and is Basita's. he alive you tried to track he him is, down he is he is i i and i, and I 
at the time that I was trying to connect with him, uh, he was traveling, and also his wife was ill, I was told. And I ho- do hope she's doing better. So unfortunately, um, I was not able to connect with him with an interview, but I certainly talked to people who knew and worked with him. And, uh, and I wish him, I hope he's well. I hope he reads, get a chance to read the book. And, he, and if he still has a chance to talk, I'd love to talk to him because uh, Danny Bessina is, is uh, D- uh, Bessina, pardon me, is a, is a huge figure in the, in the history of Vancouver uh, entertainment and nightlife. And the book is called Vancouver After Dark, a.k.a. Thank You, Rob Frith. Oh, yes, uh, Rob. Who told me the collector's story. I didn't oh, know oh, that. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Rob from Neptune Records up on Main Street here in Vancouver, a great little record store that merits uh, your, your patronage and, and or just a drop in and see what's going on. There's always something fun happening there. Uh, Rob has been a poster collector going back, I think, to his teens. And he has a, not only just, you know, everybody has a collection of a few posters maybe in their, their little box or something fun like that. Well, he has just reams and reams and file cabinets worth of this stuff. And it's an amazing archive. So Rob is very generous. Neptune Records very generous in letting me scan some of the posters, you know, at real high resolution. So they look like they're as fresh as today, as they were printed today, that are in the book. Also, other ones, you know, uh, uh, some things like the um, uh, the Perry Jaguar poster collection that's now in special collections at SFU University, Simon Fraser University. Uh, they have 30,000 posters there of his collection that are now being scanned and available online. Uh, slowly they're going to be more more. more Melody at SFU. Melody, yes, exactly. Yeah, the archivist. There. So they were great uh, finding some stuff for me as well. All of it is showcased in the book along with some stuff that's in personal collections. Or you know, there's a great photo of uh, the Palomar Ballroom out front of the book, but that that picture of the Palomar is not taken from somebody here. It was somebody who came through town, a guy from Cleveland, who took a picture of it, went back to Cleveland, and then his family, you know, put some of his photographs on eBay. A private collector in town by the name of Tom Carter bought it, and that's why it's in the book. So this, the inf- some of the, inf- the stuff that's in the book that's never been printed before and people have never seen before is, is some of the, the, the great fun of putting a book like that this, this together, pardon me. Yes, I was curious. Who is Tom Carter? The Tom Carter archives? Tom Carter, and some people, arguably more people have seen his Tom Carter's paintings than Tom Carter himself. Uh, Tom is a, is a painter in town of these great, he specializes in, in, in paintings, very large paintings in some cases, uh, of... of uh, Certain eras or certain places in Vancouver, um, that poster store on just off uh, Robson and Granville used to sort of feature a couple of his paintings. In, in, but, and there's another book that, that uh, he and I both wrote for, uh, have pieces in called um, Vancouver Confidential, that he has his, the front cover of that is a painting of his. So he's, you can find him online, but he's a, he's a great writer, he's a great painter, and he's a great collector of Vancouver theater history. And we've been tweeting out some of the images oh, in yes. your book. So people can check out Nardwar Twitter, at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R, and you can see some of the pictures from Vancouver After Dark. And we're speaking here live to Aaron Chapman from Vancouver After Dark. If anybody has any questions for Aaron Chapman, it is 604-822-UBCCITR. That is 604-822-UBCCITR. Two four eight seven and we, 604 UBC CITR. And we could give away maybe a copy or two of the book during your show here, I think, as well. If you have any questions for Aaron Chapman, also John Mackey, there are lots of Vancouver oh, yes. Sun pictures. Oh, Carolyn yes. for Vancouver Sun. Oh, Carolyn and, and John over at the Sun. Um, uh, of course, everybody knows John Mackey's articles. Uh, he's amazing. The, the, and the, and the, the Sun has uh, the, such a credit to the Sun that he's, that he's there. And uh, doesn't have a column, but 
somebody that was so important and so helpful with the book was Carolyn Saltow, who's the uh, archivist at the at the Sun, and and was so great in helping me find some photographs from their archives that probably haven't seen many many cases haven't seen the light of day for years. And we have a caller right now. Hello, caller, are you there? Caller, please turn up your radio. Turn up your radio. Caller, turn up your radio. Caller, please turn up your radio. Caller, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. If any questions, if you have any questions for Aaron Chapman, Or you got a nightclub memory or something I should, if, if you've seen the book or, I wanna, or a, a story of your own, I'd love to hear it. So, Author of Vancouver After Dark. And here we have to call her one more time. Hello, caller. Are you there? Oh, I hung up on the caller by oh. mistake. <laughs> Try to so, call back again. Try please again. call back in. You also thank Chris Hatfield. Yes. How does Commander, he relate to com- Vancouver it's funny After you mention that. You're the first person that's asked me about that. Commander Hatfield, the, the astronaut. I, uh, I, have to- I have traveled with Commander Hatfield, uh, not on the, in the space uh, shuttle or the, or the, uh, the space station, uh, in some of his speaking events um, and some of his Western Canadian appearances, I have been along for the ride, kind of as the showrunner, sort of production manager, uh, whatnot. I do some uh, some of that work as well. So I was on the road with him, and I've, I've, I've done a number of shows with him. And uh, he, cut, I, I worked with him for a period so much that I uh, that the money I earned from that, I was able to take some time off uh, to write to, to work on the book. So I kind of wanted to thank him. Uh, and he was he was in town when I got an award. So. It was a little bit of a shout-out to him, and when he sees it, I, I'm, I'm sure he's going to get a chuckle. He's a great guy. Caller, are you there? Aaron Chapman, I was wondering, what's the difference between you and Paul Chapman? That's my first question. And secondly, who invented Walk With Yan? And thirdly, I read your book, Milkshake Murder. It was wonderful. I loved it. It reminded me of the good old days. White Smart Milkshake Murder. <laughs> Well, that's a three-part question. Uh, uh, well, first of all, the milkshake murder is not by me; it's by Eve Lazarus. Uh, uh, a great book uh, that she has. I uh, wrote a I wrote something about that that appears in Vancouver Confidential. And you inspired the evaporator song. And I inspired the evaporator song, uh, milkshake, uh, milkshake murder. murderer. So uh, I, I could take a little bit of credit of being me at the at the literary nexus of that one, but uh, but that's Eve Lazarus' book. Paul Chapman. Do you mean Paul Chapman, the writer from the Vancouver province? From the province. Yeah, he is not. Uh, he is not a direct relation of mine. I know neither is Eric Chapman at CKNW, but we are often confused with one another. And uh, it does bring up the question: Did you pay a lot for the reprints from the Vancouver Sun or the Province? Because quite a few reprints yes. from the Province. Vancouver oh yeah, there's Sun. about there's about almost twenty five. 30 images from the sun. Well, that's, uh, uh, you certainly have to pay for those, and, and we're happy to pay for them. Um, uh, as part, that's, that's all part of the nor- normal process that happens when you write a book like this, that, you know, some images that you, some concert photographers that I would buy images off of, of other stuff that some people do give to me, and, it, and, it, and it's free, and they're just happy to, to see that stuff out there. Um, all the photos, for instance, that appear, excuse me, in the, in the section about the Marco Polo, great Chinatown nightclub of its day, were all photos that were literally in the waste paper basket going to be thrown out. 
and Tom Carter rescued them and uh, and and we were able to print some of these and and hopefully they'll be more widely available. Um, but great great stuff. It's it's anytime you do sort of photos like this or finding stuff, you're always doing a little bit of detective work to find images like that. And some people, you know, do do uh, you need to pay for them, and some ones you don't. But uh, but people were more than generous. Caller, you hung up, but please phone back and we'll get your name off the air. And you win a free book. book. You win a book. You win a free book. Now, speaking of posters, etc., do you own any poster of the Izzy's or the Cave? Some of the stuff from your personal collection. Have you got some cool stuff doing all those interviews? I have some stuff. I have more... Stuff. I mean, I have a I have a big trunk of real Mackenzie stuff because I was in that band from '92 to '98 or '99, and so a, a lot of my personal stuff I have archives of that. And I was when Chris Walter was working on the real Mackenzie's book, I was going to offer. I went through a few th- and I gave him a few things. I think he copied, but uh, uh, I mean, I've got I've got stuff left over. I've got toll booth receipts from Connecticut. You know, when we were on tour, I kept everything. So I have a lot of stuff like that. I don't have a lot of stuff from the K. I have a few things in a box, but. You know, I, I've been I've been more fortunate to connect with some collectors that have had that kind of stuff that uh, uh, and 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 been able to share their 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 collection. So, we have another caller. Caller, go ahead. Hey, Aaron, it's Russ calling. How are you doing? Hey, Russ. Read the book. It's fantastic. Oh, thanks, uh, man. I read all your books and I really enjoyed it. I did have a couple of questions. Yes. Um, you didn't go into the Pender Ballroom at all. Um, Iggy and the yes. Stooges played there in 873. 73, that that's it, yeah. Show. And uh, I was out the first night, and I was just wondering a bit of the history of the Pender Ballroom. Well, I mentioned the Pender in a few places. I didn't do a specific, uh, and I thought about that. I wanted to get something together, and I couldn't, you know, that there's a great photo that you could find on Google Images of Iggy at that show in 73, and I was trying to find that original photo that I could uh, it's feature in the book. It's not rag fanzine. It, it, is it? Yeah. You know, it appears, it, it, but no one seems to know who has the original. I, I wanted to do something, because John uh, Armstrong, uh, uh, Buck Cherry from the Armstrong, uh, from the uh, from the Modern Nets, pardon me, had some great memories, because he was at that show, maybe standing not a few feet away from you. Uh, and yeah, I heard I some... I went the first night when he came on really late. Right, yeah. What do you remember, caller, about Iggy Pop in 1973 at the Pender Ballroom in Vancouver? Well, I was pretty into Iggy already um, through Circus Magazine and Cream Magazine. And for me, it came through the Bowie connection. I was a huge Bowie fan. Yeah. And when Bowie started uh, talking about Iggy and working with him on Rock Power, that's when I uh, became a fan. Of course, I went back and I got the first two Stooges albums. And since then, I think I've seen him probably a dozen times. So uh, wow. still a fan. And, uh, yeah, Iggy's one of my all-time faves. I actually have a friend that was his first ever concert. <laughs> wow, Iggy what a one to see. Ballroom. The yeah, Pender Ballroom. It's like, interesting because the Pender, uh, it burned down in, uh, oh, God, it was the early 2000s. And uh, somebody had a, um, they said they were making some popcorn and the, the, the machine caught on fire. What happened was that somebody had a grow operation up on the roof in one of the residences up there. And it, and it went, you know, the fire caught like that. But there, there was some, there were definitely some shows at the, uh, at the Pender. I, I guess, I, you know, I, I, I had, I had thought about including the Pender, uh, in there, but, uh, it just did, I, I kind of ran out of space, a little bit of time in which to, to include some of the extra places I would have liked to include. I mean, I had, uh, I did about four hours of interviews with, um, uh, Rick Mills from the Waldorf, who uh, founded the Waldorf, and he had some. He had a man. He had a great memory for some of this stuff, and I really wanted to include 
you know, there was a couple other places that just sort of fell on the cutting room editing, you know, on the cutting room floor because of uh, I just didn't have enough. Like uh, the Niagara. And, then, and, and so, yeah, somebody mentioned the Niagara to me. And, and Niagara, I deliberately did not include because while it was a place in the 90s that did host some shows, I just didn't think it was enough. It's, it's, it's time in terms of its, uh, when they were hosting. Now, before then, of course, it was a beer parlor. Um, it just it, it just didn't, for me, cut the mustard in terms of being, you know, it's certainly missed uh, and whatnot, and, and arguably, you know, in a longer version of the book, I might have included that. But there are there are a couple of places that I didn't, uh, I didn't go to, or places that don't have their own chapter. They are mentioned and whatnot, but uh, right. but the Pender was, uh, the Pender's a cool place, and there are, um, there are some photographs of it, uh, but the uh, they while they did a few shows there, and certainly the Iggy show is is a very is a very a very memorable one to the people that were the, who were lucky to see that one. Um, uh, yeah, well, I was underage, so I was lucky to get in. <laughs> I, I love it. I was in grade. I was going into grade twelve, I guess. So wow. summer seventy three. So, uh, but yeah, it blew my mind that this one kid who you know he went to a few shows, but he wasn't like a big concert goer. And that was his first show. Wow. Was Iggy at the Pender Ballroom. (laughs) Any other questions at all, caller? I I have another observation, if I may. Yes. Um, As I was going through the book, Aaron, I found myself flipping on my phone a lot and looking at maps. Yes. And I know, uh, you know, it's probably costly to do maps, but I would have really found it helpful to have a nice map in the Mm, back. Yeah. An appendix that showed where these places were. Mm -hmm. And then even going further, like then and now pictures. Yes. Of uh, some of the... You know what's there now? Yeah, and obviously a lot I do of that, condos I d- and office buildings. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, yes. You don't so like cool the Aaron. You don't like the then and now pictures. No, much, I do. I do you? that. I mean, I did that in the, in the case of the Marine Club. You know, because that space that there's a, in other cases, yeah, you're just taking a picture of a condo building. So it didn't seem. Yeah. You know, I I, I was very deliberate trying to make sure all the addresses of the clubs were included yeah, in the in, in the text. You know, so because a lot of people remember. Oh, where was the Kublai Khan again? And at least I wanted to have the. I thought about doing a map at the very beginning of the book when I was putting things together, and it was just um, in the rush to get the book done and in time to for the the, the deadline for the publication. It just uh, it wasn't something that we managed to be able to do. But uh, uh, if, if if there, I feel like there's been enough interest in the book already, and and uh, if we manage to do an expanded edition or something like that, or or a, uh, something down the line, maybe we'll be able to include some of that stuff that was uh, uh, originally sort of conceived, but did, did but didn't make it to the. Uh, didn't make it to the final copy. Any other questions at all, caller? No, I don't have any more questions. Thanks a lot, Aaron and uh, Nardwar, and I'm hoping to be there on the 28th. Yes, the book um, launch on the 28th. Your, uh, Thank you. Yes. Yeah, could you You're mention good, that, my, my literary agent here, making sure this happens. Uh, there's a book <laughs> launch uh, happening on November 28th, uh, and it's happening at 856 Seymour, which we, in 1971 was the Thunderbird Club in the later 70s and early 80s. Uh, it was the Playpen Central, a very famous a uh, gay night spot in Vancouver in the early 90s. In fact, in October 1992, I played there in the second Real McKenzie show ever uh, when it was uh, the Hollywood North, a.k.a. Licorice Whip. And uh, <laughs> so this will be the first time since 1992 I've been on that stage again. It's now called cool. Central Studios, and uh, uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, Les Goodman from the Jazzmanian Devils is, is emceeing. Uh, Gene Hardy and the Vancouver After Dark Orchestra featuring Paul Pagat is going to be there for it. And we're going to have some fun uh, on, on the 20th. And it's free to attend with a donation to the Vancouver Archives. So if you just have a, a two or a fiver or a toonie or a five or something like that, you're able to drop in the, in the bucket. Uh, all that's going to go to help the Vancouver Archives be able to scan more images and make more stuff available to the public. Well, thanks so much, caller, and do do loot do Do-do. 
Yay! And you're still listening to CITR Radio, and we have another caller right now for Aaron Chapman. Hello, caller. Are you there? Please turn down your radio. Where where did Bruno Gerussi like to party? Where did Bruno Gerussi like to party? Well, you know, the smart money says everywhere. <laughs> Boom. Uh, caller, did you like the fact that I said turn down your radio instead of turning up your radio? <laughs> And again, 604-822-2487, 604-822-CITR, to speak to Aaron Chaman, author of Vancouver After Dark. We are tweeting out some Im- images yes. from your book to my Twitter yes. t- account if people want to check that out. And actually, somebody did reply, and actually, husband of Sharon, at husband of Sharon, said... Love the tape over Canada. Wonder what was underneath. And that is an actual gig poster from Tommy Chong's yes. place, the Blues Palace. And if you notice, it says... Oh, someone's put... T- yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they, and, they, and they even got the name wrong. It was actually called the Blues Palace, but whoever put the poster together called it the Blues Place. And I guess they made, you know, probably 500 of these posters and thought, well, we can't get them back now. So they just they just hung them up everywhere. Uh, but... Uh, uh, yeah, the, there, I got a chance to speak with Tommy Chong, and everybody knows Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong, of course, and knows him as a as a comedian and 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 you know arguably the the biggest comedy duo of the seventies uh, and early eighties, which was Cheech and Chong. But uh, Tommy had a has an amazing history here in Vancouver throughout the nineteen sixties as not only as a musician about town that was playing in you know some of its most sort of well known and working bands, but him and his brother who is sort of the unsung hero uh, as well, uh, Stan Chong, was um, they were managing clubs as well. And they, they Miss Tees. Miss Tees. Which is right underneath the Pender Ballroom. That was a different place. There was there was Miss T's Cabaret there was and there was T's Cabaret. Miss T's Cabaret uh, was part of the Pender Ballroom, but T's Cabaret was down on Pender. Uh, so it's, that's an easy. I I had to make that. I had to research and make sure I had those. Damn, lines. because people can actually check out Ms. T's Cabaret on YouTube. Yes, in the Art Bergman video. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So if they type in "Yeah, I guess," they can they actually can see Ms. T's, which at least was underneath where Iggy played. Yes, exactly. And uh, and Art Bergman's in the book too. Uh, Art has some great memories of and uh, and a really and some really funny uh, thoughts on on what the Smiling Buddha used to be like. But Tommy was great, and and one of my favorite interviews uh, that I did with the book because Tommy, uh, you know, I guess when he does interviews today, people want to ask him Cheech and Chong related stuff, and I was asking some stuff about Vancouver when he you know first came here in the early '60s, uh, and mentioning some names of some club owners and some places that obviously somebody people hadn't really asked him about for a while. So we had a lot of fun chatting, and and so many stories are are, are in there from from Tommy's uh, uh, interview. And I had a chance to meet uh, Tommy when he came to town. We just did a phone interview when he was in, at home in California, although he still thinks of Vancouver as home, he says. Uh, when Cheech and Chong were just up here out at Abbotsford, playing, I was able to give him uh, 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 you know, some of my previous books and talk a little further because this, this new book hadn't been out then. Uh, but I talked about you know, how uh, the, our interview and, uh, and some of our, my thoughts or some of his thoughts that went into the book, uh, as I say. And it, we, he was, he's got some amazing uh, memories of not only not only his, some of the clubs that he worked in, but you know he knew everywhere else. He knew some of the other people that ran these clubs. So he was a real wealth of information. I think when people read the book, they'll kind of 
rediscover and, and have a total new appreciation for Tommy Chong being a musician and, and, a, and a musical mover and shaker here in the 1960s. Was it hard to hook up with him, to get an interview with Tommy Chong? Interesting enough, Robbie Chong, uh, his daughter, uh, had reached out to me a couple years ago asking about something, and I said, geez, I'd love to talk to your dad about something I'm going to work on next. So uh, we, we played a little bit of phone tag to, to arrange a, a good time, but Paris uh, Chong, I want to thank him, uh, Tommy's son, for uh, sort of helping put that together too, but but uh, uh, it was great, and when I, you know, I when I met Tommy and and uh, uh, Cheech uh, at the uh, Cheech Mar- uh, Richard Marin Cheech Marin at the at, at that show, uh, Cheech was pouring over the Commodore book that I that I gave him, and, and you know we f- forget that uh, that Cheech was here for a while too, before, you know, coming up here getting away from the draft um, as well. So it was it, he was. He had some, I, I, you know, I should have uh, uh, talked to him too because he had some r- r- own places that he remembered. He hadn't been as here as, as long as Tommy had, but it was still really fun to talk to him and uh, and and talk to them both about those about those. They came up with the name Cheech and Chong as their comedy act as they drove over the Georgia Viaduct. Um, so, you know, Cheech and Chong are, are kind of inevitably find their roots here in, in Vancouver and in such an unlikely place down on Main Street there. Husband of Sharon commented on the Blues Palace. Yes. Where was the Blues Palace? This is a Tommy Chong club. Yeah. It was the Blues Palace was in a place called the Alma Theater. Not far from here, as a matter of fact, just up by uh, 10th and Alma. And it's um, not there anymore. It's not there anymore. No. It, it, by the time the that Tommy uh, and his friends had got involved running that place, and Tommy had some great memories that he recalled saying, you know, they had to go to the city to get a permit to do music there, and they wanted a parking plan, so he wrote something in ballpoint pen on a, practically on a serviette that he, that he submitted to the city, he said. But uh, it, was, it was just in that sort of that little mall area where Limelight Video used to be. Um, I'm not sure, I can't think of what's hand with there's now, but just that corner there, just up from there, there was, that, that's where the Alma Theater was. And it was, it had been built in the 1920s, I want to say early 20s. So by the 1960s, it, it was a little bit sort of weather-beaten and, and run down, and, and uh, the, blues, the Blues Palace was really the last thing in there before it was demolished. For Tommy Chong, he talked about railway porters being yes. important. Yeah, yeah. The um, you, you know that sort of ties in with um, what was you know the sort of the fledgling black community that was in Vancouver that was all centered around Hogan's Alley, uh, ironically destroyed for Divide which was honorable. Yeah, keep getting back to that, coming back to that again. Yeah, for sure. Um, there was a there were a lot of black um, uh, African American workers up here that were living up here because they were working on the railways and they happened to you know reside here especially close to where the train station is which is still the, of course that's the one thing that's there today um and uh there were there was a number of people that were that were part of that that scene and part of that music scene that was happening sort of at the north end of main street as well whether they were just going to the clubs arranging them or being involved with them like uh, the harlem nocturne uh or 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 playing in them so it was an interesting really interesting time when do you write, Aaron Chapman? You were author of Vancouver After Dark. When do you write? Because you've pumped out four books. What are the yeah. four books again you have pumped out? The first one is called Liquor Lust and the Law. And are you insulted by by me saying pumped out? No, no not at all. No, I'm, 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 I, I wish I could pump them out faster. I wish I could pump a little bit faster and more often than I could. And you were they saying, 
University professors. Well, are yes, I, I, you know, I, 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 a history professor told me that you know you've you've written four books in eight years. There are some university professors that don't that don't publish that much. So, which was very kind of him to say. I I I, uh, I was sort of honored by by him saying that. But uh, Liquor, Lust, and the Law: The Story of uh, the Penthouse Nightclub was the first book I wrote in 2012 uh, that talked about the Philipp- the amazing story of the Filipponi family and and the incredible history of the penthouse and how really how Vancouver entertainment history and Vancouver crime history uh, intersect in that place. And then the uh, book Live at the Commodore about the history of the Commodore Ballroom that came out 2015. Um, BC Book Prize winner, I'm happy to say. And, uh, you know, I, it, in many ways I'm kind of surprised that I, no one else had written a book about the Commodore or the Penthouse. It was just, they, those subjects were just sort of waiting to happen, uh, to be written about there. And then one that was sort of a little more offbeat was the next one was The Last Gang in Town, which is a story about the old Clark Park gang in East Vancouver in the early 1970s, particularly around the year 1972 when the, um, the Vancouver Police Department formed a, a secret gang task force to go after the, the street gang. Um, and it's an amazing story, true story, that I managed to find some of the old gang members and some of the old police that were a part of that uh, speak, who speak on the first time uh, for that. And then, uh, you know, I, I, there's, there was some, maybe something I was trying to decide what to do after that. There was a true crime story I was interested after hearing after doing Last Gang, but it felt like, like the right time to do this look back in Vancouver nightclubs because you know we're at sort of at, at, you know after several years of Vision Vancouver maybe or, or uh, the, after you know twenty years of, of downtown Vancouver changing in particular everybody talks about you know the city changing since Expo eighty six it's really even the, the real changes have, have really felt like they've kicked in in the last 20 years. Um, it felt like a good time to look back and sort of uh, analyze what had happened with some of these clubs and some of these places that we still talk about. Um, you know, Vancouverites, as I say, of a certain age, still will talk about the cave and Izzy's and Ocan Harry's and more. And people, you know, my generation probably more talk about the love affair and uh, and the town pump. And the places that we really miss, you know. So there's, you know, every city, no city is supposed to be a museum. And every city loses its great clubs. One thing happens to another. It just seems to happen. Look at New York. Even CBGB's is gone. But it's interesting to think about, you know, so the changes have been so happened so quickly in Vancouver, especially downtown, that we've lost so many of these these great night spots. And, and of course, there are new ones, and there's some great new ones out there. And there's still, you know, there's still a nightlife to be had. I really, I really think that because there's some 22-year-old kid who's going to go out tonight, and he's 20 years later, he's going to talk about like that, that, that that was his glory days. You know, there's one thing; these things tend to be cyclical, and and every every generation has their own favorite spots and their own music. You know, like arguably somebody, you know, today they're not interested, obviously, in the music of somebody who was there. That was their music 30, 40 years ago, but. As I say, these things are sort of cyclical, and there's one thing that if you're a historian, you realize there's, there's no single decade that was the glory days. There were just periods of popularity and, and periods of trends. So, And you were Aaron Chaman, author of Vancouver After Dark, 604-822-247, 604-822-CITR, and we have a caller. Yes. Caller, are you there? Caller, are, are you, you there? do do loo do are they gone? We only got one. <laughs> we didn't get an actual double. But I was curious. Oh, let's try. try oh, no, we don't get another caller right now. I was curious. So when do you write, Eric? Oh, when do I write? When do you write? Well, you know, for those of you here at, at who are in UBC and perhaps in a creative writing class, or or you're you're in a you're an English major or something like this, I don't know what teachers or or professors advise. I know many people say, well, you wake up. 
you know, after a good night's sleep and you have a nice breakfast and then you should, you should write from the morning till about noon and then just edit for the rest of the day. Maybe go back and look at what you've done. And I don't do that at all, I, I confess. Uh, I've got stuff to do in the day. I've, I've got, you know, lots of people I would just interview in the day. But I, would t- I typically have written all my books and, from about midnight till 6 in the morning. <laughs> and then I would sleep for a good chunk of the day the next day. I don't advise it. It's, it's a little... On it, computer? On, I, I do it, yeah. I do it on a, on a, on a Mac at home. And uh, uh, I, I tend to write... It's a little quieter at night. I can sort of focus more. It also feels like to a certain degree... Some of the, so many of the books that and and some of the so much of the stuff I'm writing about, uh, even in the case of the of the of the last gang in town, um, some of the stuff happens at night, and it just feels like more at the right time to start writing some of this stuff than anything else. What about typos? I noticed on page seventy four there is a typo there. Where is it? Where the oh. typo is October thirty first, nineteen. Oh, there's a date missing on the oh nine one nine eight. We're missing. We're missing the. Uh, well, yeah. There's a, who checks for typos? Well, you know What's what? It's hard to check for typos. <laughs> you know, there's about ten people that probably all read the book before it goes to print, and it's amazing how ten people could all miss something. That's in a footnote uh, that we're, you're looking at there. So I, I, I well, but there's always something. I don't know how many times that you everybody can go through it, and people who write books and probably edit books will, 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 <laughs> you know, probably will say the same thing. It's, it's. But we're gonna, we, you know. We catch these things on a, on, a, on a, and correct them on a, on the next print. Easter but. egg on page seventy four. Caller, are you there? <laughs> yes, I am here. Please go ahead to Hello, Aaron Shaman. I'd like to ask if uh, you got any of the artist uh, fashion shows that happened at the cave around the end of its life. We talk about the you know the talk Factor about the end of the fashion. I haven't seen your book yet. Oh it, it, well, it it focuses more on on clubs as a whole, and it's particularly sort of sp- spotlights the live music. Uh, stuff Le- less, oh, okay. probably less stop fashion shows. Although probably, you know, well, where where they were meritable, I've always tried to. If for different kinds of events, I've tried to include those mention of those too. But uh, you know, I- in terms of when I first sort of sat down and was doing research for the book, I, I thought, you know, the book could easily be nine hundred pages if I tried to include every single night and every single event that happened. Yeah. Thing that I, I felt a little bit like that when I was working on the Commodore book because you there's so many people and so many different kinds of events that have been in these kinds of places. You can't no no book can do mention every single place or what was happening or or talk to every person that worked there. Well, uh, I have a massive uh, a, a pile of photographs from one of the great fashion shows. And wow. that was uh, a silver-faced, white, zoot-suited saxophone player on roller skates with a fellow on drywall stilts dressed as a building. <laughs> Wow, we were dancing around up there, and I've got all kinds of photographs. Well, I'd love to see them because you know sometimes these things uh, just end up in future projects uh, yeah, that I yeah. work on. So well, uh, uh, let me uh, give you my number off air, and then uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah, if you could hold on, caller, we'll take you that. Bet. But I was curious for people that don't know, could you explain what you appeared to see at the cave when you were yeah. there? What did oh, you well, see? What was the cave like? Oh, it was absolutely fabulous. And actually, I knew uh, a good friend in high school. His father had done all the plaster stalactites. Oh, wow. That were in there and everything. He was like one of the original builders of the place. Uh, so it looked I mean, like a cave. It was fabulous. Could... It was amazing. You know? it, so it looked like a cave. It really it was a cave. It looked like a cave and... with a wonderful stage. And you got to remember, Mitzi Gaynor was there all the time. Yes. And Ginger <laughs> Rogers caused the cave to end? Well, you know, in the last era of the cave, um, in arguably the the great that era of nightclub entertainment, 
by the end of the 1970s had ended. Many, you know, one of the things that killed that that kind of show lounge nightclub was this was they were victims of their own success. The mm. wave of nightclub performers that came starting through really through the 1960s and those lounge acts that went all the way through the 1970s, they began to get so popular that now they didn't need to, you know, do two weeks or 10 days at the cave. They could do, you know, one night or two nights uh, at the Queen Elizabeth Theater or in the case of some performers uh, at the Pacific Coliseum. So the entertainment began to be more and more expensive that they couldn't really focus on that. And then the new, the last management of the cave that was um, part of uh, that, which was, um, they struggled to find... Uh, Stan Grazina was was the gentleman that was what owned it in his last place. He started to do some musical theater stuff. He started to do some other things, and it just didn't it just didn't really take off. They were even you know they were even sort of bringing in bands that arguably would have never you know been able to get anywhere near that. The Pointed Sticks you know did a show at the Cave and things like this. So <laughs> it, it, it and, and you can imagine what the punk rock crowd would would look like you know in in a place like that. So. Oh, what about no, that never would have worked. <laughs> what about Jack Wasserman? Because it was Wasserman's beat. He sure. loved the cave. Did he ever cover punk rock? Because he died at 50. Yes, or- he died very, very young. And, and Did he like rock or punk? Cause- well, you know, but the thing is, with, with Jack, Jack was probably stuck in his own uh, musical era and whatnot, but he was remarkably open to other stuff, you know, and... and uh, but did he ever write about punk? I don't know. If he, I don't know if he ever specifically he, so. did. He wrote a lot about you know the clubs. But yeah, you would think he would inadvertently write about I think, rock. I think or he punk. might have. I think he might have written something offhanded. But it's not as though that in his saloon beat reportage that he was going down to the Smiling Buddha or something like that. But uh, you know, he. I, I have stories from other writers that were involved. Um, uh, Kevin McCune was was um, uh, who was the gay columnist in the Georgia Strait. Uh, they would pal around together at some clubs, and he just you know they were just thought he was a, uh, they were just friends. So so oh. oftentimes Wasserman did go some places that were a little bit sort of off the beaten track of his normal thing. But you know the cave was his office, and, and the one thing that's really left that's uh, the Pender Ballroom. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and you know, like, so I haven't read your book yet. I'm dying to read it. Yeah, <laughs> well, Cola, just keep hanging on there for a second. I was gonna sure. say there's amazing Bev Davies photos yes. of punk rock at the cave. Oh, for sure. And oh. I remembered a story, and I think it's told by John Armstrong, mm. who is in all of your books, isn't he? He's in Pretty three much. or four books for some reason. Yeah, John Armstrong <laughs> of the Modernettes, <laughs> yeah, the writer. I don't yeah. remember any of those. <laughs> you remember the Modernettes, <laughs> though. You remember the oh, Modernettes, yeah, caller. Well, John, I mean, the same age group. There. Yeah. So he's a recurring <laughs> character in all your books. He is. He, he, pretty he, much. Because he was at the Rolling Stones concert that appears in The uh, Last Gang in Town. He's, of course, in the Commodore book in his capacity being a musician. And uh, and he's in this one, having you know some memories of... Uh, of Johnny this, of Thunders. The, and he says how Johnny Thunders used his New York library card to get over the border. Right. Yeah. That's an amazing uh, Like he had no passport. That that's a library card to get to the cave. Yeah, to get to, to get to Gary Taylor's rock room. Uh, which, which where that show took place, and Gary Taylor is is who just had his birthday last weekend, seventy uh, eighth birthday, I think. Well, you uh, must mention Richard Hell and, and just oh, over, there you go, some of those people as well, yeah. And, and Gary Taylor's, yeah, yeah. yeah. This photo uh, is it a photo or is it a scan of a poster? That is that is a scan of a poster. Yeah. Did you take a lot of photos because the posters are huge? Yeah, I. I How I, did you scan huge posters? Uh, it was a matter of getting a large, having access to a large uh, flat. Bed scanner in some cases, and in other cases, 
uh, just taking uh, a, a, a photo of those, which I did in, in somewhat of a controlled environment. You did in it. my home, and and uh, a, a very dear friend, Kylie McDonald, giving her a shout out, helped me take some of those as well. So, uh, and we are tweeting out these images on my Twitter at Nardwar. I love it. Speaking I love live it. to Aaron Chapman, author of Vancouver After Dark. One picture here is of the cave, a poster yes. given by Rob Frith. Thank yes, you, from Rob Neptune Frith. Records, yeah. What is that poster? It's not for a specific event. It's a generic poster. It was kind of a showcase night between painters. No, it's not a night. There is no date on the poster. But it was. this was, a, uh, this was featuring uh, a bunch of bands coming up, a bunch of events coming up. So a poster like – there are some posters that don't show – uh, um, you know, there's different kinds of there were there were different era of posters. Some of the uh, entertainment, like Monday through Friday, but yeah. it doesn't say what month or a day or anything. Because it was simply on the table or on the wall of the club that night. And and the one thing that you realize when you're in, in getting in any kind of nightclub history is most of the people that run these places are just worried about the next night ahead. And as soon as that night's over, they forget about it. So you know, the, in many cases, the old ledgers or club calendars. Many people just, lots of people just sort of would throw these things out, uh, not knowing that somebody like me, of course, would be interested in them. But uh, there's, there's, uh, they're always more worried about what's coming up rather than what's in the past. And in many cases, when somebody has saved an archive book or an old ledger or, uh, you know, the old, just the coat check sales, uh, you know, ledger that sometimes, like stuff that some people have found or kept, or it was something, you know, in dad's box of stuff in his office that people have shown me, it's, it's, these are amazing things to find. And they help tell their story of their own. Caller, just hold on, and yes, we'll I take will. your name off the air. Right now, we're going to play cut a song. To, we're going to cut to Ladies Night Rap. What can you see about this record? You're this holding is from up the Nard collection. This is from but the Nardwar archives. It's from Champagnes in Surrey. Caller, do you remember Champagnes in Surrey? Did oh, you ever go to no, gigs in Surrey? Surrey. Yeah. <laughs> Always downtown Vancouver. Yeah, Champagnes in Surrey. Uh, this is from 1986. I recorded and produced at Holly Rock, which sounds like that's interesting. Um, Champagnes in Surrey was a nightclub, and this, uh, we believe, is the first rap record ever to come out of Vancouver. Now it's a novelty. It's, it's a novelty song. It's 1986. It's not, it's, Props to EQ, if, yeah. who released the first 12 inch, but we right. think this is the first rap record, that 1986. Single. 1986. 1986 to come out of Vancouver. And it's actually lovely Linda doing an ode to Ladies' Night and Ladies' Night at Champagne's. Wow. So Champagne's put out this record it's amazing. for their club. There are a lot of clubs put out records. Do you have any records the, put up at clubs? There are a few. The Bunkhouse record. The bunkhouse, yeah. There were some. There were some recordings like uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee recorded live at the bunkhouse. Oh. There was. There was. There's been. There's been. There was Town Pump put out a record, uh, and many of these things were just sort of souvenirs or advertising that they would do at a certain extent. And and, and they're, but they're great. You know, they they usually have some liner notes and stuff like that, and they're a great little sort of historical record. Or or some of the photos are fascinating to look at. So here we have right now Vancouver After Dark, Aaron Chapman, and right now we're gonna play Lovely Linda, the first rap out of Vancouver novelty, nineteen eighty six champagne. Still got love for the streets. Champagne's cabaret presents Ladies Night rap on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. I... So hello. Uh, oh no! Uh, oh. Uh, 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 <laughs> Almost there. Uh, 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 oh. Uh, actually, 
Um, I, I, um, we made a slight mistake. I made a slight mistake. Um, in other words, we uh, actually, this is the actual record. Uh, Aaron, could you say more? This, uh, this for a second while I re-cue the record up there. Could you say more about the book, Vancouver After Dark, and Chris Arnett, who might be listening right oh, now. Oh, yeah, Chris uh, Arnett, uh, Professor Chris Arnett. And the punk connection. Chris. Yes, yes, he was, uh, he was uh, 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 in the Furies. Yes. And uh, great, you know, Vancouver sort of first punk rock band. That's and he's great. an anth- he's a University of BC anthropologist uh, professor now. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I met Chris a few years back at the Galliano Literary Festival, um, and we we kind of hit it off uh, uh, there. He was really fun to talk to, and, and I had a great time with him. And uh, I interviewed him in the book because uh, you know it's interesting. Um, there have been. You know, we we obviously think of the nightclub history here in the, maybe the last, you know, sort of century, perhaps, or something like that. But you know, we talked in one of my conversations with him. We talked about how, of course, you know, First Nations and Indigenous people here who were here long before any nightclubs, but they had their own rituals and their own sort of nighttime activities. Sometimes we have this idea that. Uh, you know, people who live perhaps so closely to the land in that sense uh, were just awake during normal daylight hours, and, and there was, uh, but but there was there were many First Nation cultures here in this uh, part of the province that had their own nighttime uh, rituals and storytelling they would do and things like this. So <clears throat> it's interesting to think, you know, to compare. Uh, you know, it's a it's a crass comp- not a crass comparison, but it's a reductive comparison to to try and you know compare uh, somebody going out for a night at Izzy Supper Club to some to you know these very sort of sacred you know t- centuries old traditions. But something's been happening under Vancouver skies at night with people getting together uh, under different auspices and different uh, and different eras. Uh, and it's and I make sort of that that's one of the things that we discuss early in the book about that 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 concept and whatnot. But Chris is a, is a fascinating guy, and if and if you track down some of his writing. Uh, out there, it's it, it, his. Uh, he's a, he's a very learned uh, professor in that regard. And here we go, lovely Linda. With I want to hear it, ladies. Rap. Oh. Okay, can I? Yeah, one sec here. With to a ladies' night at a bar downtown. Party with my friends, watch the boys get down. We were laughing, chuckling, having a good time. Swear to God, it hardly cost a dime. We won prizes, risers, shooters too. We had a good time, a great time, and you could too. DMC's, you know, on a Pied Piper trip. She'll make you laugh and dance about a script. You say a whistle and we do. Scream and we did. Get on your knees, drink this. You feel like a kid. They call it ladies' night, girls' night, women's night too. Whatever they call it, it's a night for you. It's ladies' night, your night, a night of fun. A night when the men come in when it's done. The entertainment is raw, primetime treat. If you're lucky, you'll see some primetime meat. There's Superman, Wolfman, Tin Man too. Cowboys, cops, they're all for you. See boatsmen, ducks, princes too. All your fantasies lined up for you. They're tall, they're short, they're fat and they're thin. But there's only one business they love to be in. They call it ladies' night, girls' night, women's night too. Whatever they call it, it's a night for you. It's ladies' night, yo, night, a night of fun. A night when the men come in when it's If you've seen my show, you know what I do. I poke some fun the girls' way too. I tell some jokes and that can't be wrong, cause they all like to hear my milk song, 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 milk song, song, milk song. Here we go, girls. 
I don't drink milk because my best friends do. And I don't drink milk because I like to scream. I don't drink milk because I'm long and lean. I don't drink milk because I'm so obscene. I don't drink milk because it comes from a tip. I don't drink milk because I don't give a shit. I don't drink milk when I'm smoking grass. I don't drink milk because I got a bad ass. And I don't drink milk when I'm taking a toast. I don't drink milk because it makes me choke. I don't drink milk because it curdles my scotch. I don't drink milk because I got a sore crotch. And I don't drink milk because I'm just a little runt. I don't drink milk because I got an itchy. And I don't drink milk because I drive a truck. I don't drink milk because I don't give a fuck. I don't drink milk because I masturbate. I drink milk because it tastes so great. So great. Call it ladies' night, girls' night, women's night too. Whatever they call it, it's a night for you. It's ladies' night, your night, a night of fun. A night when the men come in when it's done. A night when the men come in when it's done. Now for those of you who have never been, it's the craziest show you've ever seen. You get waited on by the hardest men. Drink so cheap you can't remember when. They treat you right, you get high as a kite. There's never a fight, it's a night you'll like. Now you ask, how can I prove it? If you haven't been to ladies' night, do it, do it, do it. Now you ask, how can I prove it? If you haven't been to ladies' night, do it, do it, do it. They call it ladies', ladies night, girls' night, women's night too. Whatever they call it, it's a night for you. It's ladies' night, your night, a night of fun. A night when the men come in when it's done. done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's when done, done, done. done. This first song, let me quit and go with playing. This first song, a little song called Ride and Roll. We used to ride the Greyhound bus, you know, and you go ask for a ticket, you had to holler at the agent there, you know, because he's a little harder hand, you know. Give me a ticket! Long is my right arm. Woo! I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to find my baby candy, hello. For this red cap porter now hit me with my heavy load. For this red cap porter now hit me with my heavy load. Cause the woman I'm loving, she further on down the road. Woo! I'm gonna ride, ride, ride. I'm gonna roll, roll, roll. I'm gonna ride, ride, ride. I'm gonna roll, roll, roll. I'm gonna find my baby candy's death load. Well, I know my baby bound to jump and shout. Well, I know my baby bound to jump and shout When that bus roll up and I come walking out Woo! I want to ride, ride, ride I want to roll, 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 roll I want to ride, 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 ride I want to roll, 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 roll I want to find my baby candy dead I want to write me a letter, I want to mail it in the air I want to write me a letter, I want to mail it in the air I want to let you men know I got me a woman somewhere. Woo! I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to find my baby candy.
Well, I know my baby bound to love me some. Well, I know my baby bound to love me some. She throw arms all around me like a circle around the sun. Woo! I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to find my baby candy heavy load. Catch me greyhound bus, I'm going to ride until his tongue right the ground. Catch me greyhound bus, I'm going to ride until his tongue right the ground. I'm going to find my baby, don't think she can be found. Woo! I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to find my baby candy heavy load. One more time. I want to ride, ride, ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to ride, 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 ride. I want to roll, roll, roll. I want to find my baby candy heavy load. And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And shout out to Jim. Shout out to Jim. Thanks, Jim, uh, uh, who won one of the copies. We got, one, we got one more to give away, actually. Actually, we did get another oh, copy. Oh, did we? So we have given two. The first oh, caller okay. that asked about the... Paul Chapman question. Oh yes, yeah. Yes. I, I wasn't sure if we, we, we got his number. Involved. Oh, I he phoned off off the Excellent. air. Excellent. Okay, so that's good. We've given away both both copies of Vancouver oh, After wow. Dark, but you said there's some other stuff coming up. I do have some other stuff coming up. In addition, if you uh, if, if you didn't win a book today, come to the uh, Vancouver After Dark book launch party at uh, uh, Central Studios, aka the Hollywood North, aka the Playpen Central, aka the Thunderbird Club on. Uh, uh, Thursday, November 28th, doors open at 7, we get going at 8 o'clock, and uh, also, uh, there'll be some other, I'm going to be going to some other bookstores to do some signings and stuff like this, but in January, I think it's January 23rd, um, I will be speaking at the uh, at the Vancouver Museum um, and doing a talk uh, then. There'll be more information about that uh, on my social media accounts as well as the Vancouver Historical Society, who's going to be doing, uh, who's hosting that. I'm going to be showing some slides uh, from the book as well as telling some stories uh, maybe that didn't make it into the book as well. So I encourage everybody to come to that. It's, it's, uh, it's free to attend. And the book is called? Vancouver After Dark. And we have live Aaron Chapman, A.O. Chapman, at CITR Radio. You don't get to win a book, but you can still phone in and ask Aaron questions. 604-822-247, 604-822-CITR. I'm also tweeting out images from the book. Those pictures you're tweeting are amazing. A lot of posters. Also, I was curious about the bug Hey, Tommy Chong chimed in. Oh, he did? He gave gave a doot-doot. Really? Yeah. You're kidding. I'm not. I'm looking at it right now. That's amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Tommy. Hello, Tommy. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Do 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 do. Yeah. Dude, that's amazing. Now, the bunkhouse. We just played a song. Yeah. Before lovely Linda, ladies, rap. She doesn't. Where, she doesn't drink milk. She doesn't drink milk, and I spent a lot of time queuing that up. That was very <laughs> even has nothing to do with your book. It was important. Hey, it's all Vancouver Entertainment. We played ladies, rap. The first rap for Vancouver. Very think, first rap. Nineteen eighty-six from Champagnes. That's the reason. Champagnes Club Champagnes in, in, in Surrey. In yeah. Surrey. And then we played something by... Oh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee live at the bunkhouse. 
1963, I think it was, 64, around then. And what was the Bunkhouse, and why did we play that song? Bunkhouse was a great uh, Vancouver club in the early 1960s, run by a guy by the name of Les Stork. Now, Les Stork is a fascinating figure in Vancouver entertainment because he uh, arguably, fascinating guy because he you know, got out of the Canadian Army, he was a professional boxer, trained boxer, basically, gets into the nightclub industry and uh, unfortunately learns some habits or, or gets into some habits that maybe he shouldn't have got into and ends up in a uh, ends up being arrested in a very sensational way. Let me just put it that way. I don't want to spoil the story in the book. But we played an actual record that was recorded it was live recorded at, at the bunkhouse. Bunk it wasn't just the artist. It yes. was actually, it's called Reco- Live at the Bunkhouse. And it's interesting that, that the bunkhouse is actually still there. It's one of those clubs like the Town Pump where that building is actually still there, but it's been empty. Some people might re- remember the Atlantic Trap and Gill club that was around in the early 2000s, late 90s maybe, um, that was down at, at Seymour and Davy, just on the corner there. It's been a number of different things over the years in re- different restaurants. It's been empty forever, but downstairs was the bunkhouse there. and that, So that building is still there, kind of waiting to perhaps live again as a, as a nightclub. And we have a caller. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Please go ahead to Aaron Chaman, author of Vancouver After Dark. Oh, I, I have your your book on the penthouse. Oh, it's excellent! Fantastic. Thank you. Fantastic, yeah. And I've I've actually talked to the you know the uh, Filipponi family in, a number of times and mm. toured the thing. Do you have any? Is there anything new that's uh, come out in the, this book? Uh, oh, in, in this new book? Oh, certainly. Um, yeah. there's, there's a lot of photos that have never been published before or shown before that have, you know that were hidden away in basically people's private collections or family photo albums and whatnot. There's a lot of new stories or um, some stories that are, have completely been forgotten. There's a couple of unsolved murders that are that happen in some of these nightclubs <laughs> that are still unsolved. I had to check with the police department to find out uh, if they were if they were still active files, and they are. You also uh, so. talk about the gonorrhea racetrack. Yes. Yeah, which was uh, part of Danceland. Uh, and Don Bellamy, who was on uh, Vancouver City Council, referred to it as that. In the 1940s, uh, it, it was referred to as the gonorrhea racetrack. And Danceland <laughs> was up top, right? Danceland was up top, yeah, just down off Robson uh, there. And that uh, was demolished in the early 1960s. And Mrs. Munster was there. Yes, yeah, uh, th- that's right. Yeah, Lily Munster, yeah, yeah. And what happened to Jack Helen's record collection? Uh, it was basically sold off in, in as eBay sales, as, as, as I heard from Red Robinson, um, his massive record collection. So it didn't one collector didn't pick it all up. It went to various numbers of people. And the Crump Twins danced there, right? The Crump Twins, uh, new inductees of the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame, uh, Ronnie and Reggie Crump, uh, are, are in talking about playing at the Smiling Buddha, of all things, in the 1960s, before it went to a punk place. And it's funny because some of their memories of the place are... are were, were, were pretty rough, it, perhaps even rougher than they might have been in the Smiling Booty years. Caller, do you have any questions at all for Aaron Chapman? Uh, I was wondering also, do you have anything, I know the Waldorf isn't really maybe a club per se, but mm. do you, I've always been looking for more stories on the Waldorf. And I've yes, you know, and I, I mentioned earlier in, the, in in our broadcast here about about the Waldorf. I flew down to Las Vegas a, f- uh, a few years back and interviewed Rick Mills, who uh, founded the Waldorf with his father and yeah. sold ownership of it in kind of the mid-60s there. But yeah. uh, this was probably the last interview he gave because um, he 
cancer came back after that, and sadly he passed. But um, I, I spent hours with him, and he had a razor sharp memory. And I wanted to include. In fact, the Waldorf was actually supposed to be was always on the on the idea for this book uh, to be in there, and it just sort of unfortunately just dropped off. And as I was kind of putting the sculpting the getting the idea together for the book, and and figuring which clubs I could talk about and which ones uh, were more be more on the orbiting. Uh, around it, you know, and, and whatnot. But that yeah. that eventually that information, some of those interviews, I think are going to eventually uh, see the light of day in a future project, or perhaps uh, you know maybe a sequel or or if, if to this book if it if it goes well, who knows? But uh, yeah. there's 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 great information out there about the Waldorf, and and the funny thing was that Mills, uh, as I say, he he could tell you what the kind of paint was or where they ordered the paint was uh, on, on the walls. You know, he had a great, great memory for this stuff and, uh, and was, was very candid in the interviews. He told me the names of the liquor inspectors he bribed at the time and, and all this sort of great sort of wild uh, information. So I'm hoping to, to eventually use that if, if, uh, in, in maybe a, something separate or a future project or, or down the road here. So. In this oh, new great, book, yeah. Caller, Vancouver After Dark, Aaron talks about Izzy's and how Sammy Davis used to party at the Walters' house. Could you explain oh, that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it was very common that... Uh, and Richard uh, Pryor went to the kids... Took, uh, the, took kids. the kids to Stanley Park. Yeah, there's lots of great stories from uh, that uh, that haven't been heard before, including actually, you know, Richard Pryor coming to Vancouver and, and you know, his show being shut down by Vancouver police in 1969 um, because his act was deemed uh, offensive. You know, what happened was is there was actually two undercover police officers, Vancouver police, in the um, in Izzy's that night, two Catholic officers, I might add, and some a couple of Catholic jokes that Richard told that night, they didn't like, <laughs> and they they were the ones, had they not been there that night, not, none of them would have happened. But, you know, Richard eventually just uh, scooted out of, he only managed about four out of ten shows that he was supposed to do, and was canceled, and then scooted out of town with a bench warrant after his name because <laughs> he didn't pay his hotel bill, uh, which he said later he was going to pay by check, uh, you know, once his once the money cleared from, from his four performances that he did rather than ten. But um, yeah, there's lots of stories in here that never was Another, one of my favorite stories. Dusty I, punching? Is, 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 Dusty, Dusty Springfield punching Richie. Uh, and it's funny because... Of Izzy's, Rich, right? uh, Of Izzy's, yeah. Uh, Izzy's son, uh, Richie Walters, who co-owned and co-ran the bar with him, uh, he talks about Dusty Springfield punching him uh, in the face after a show. You uh, you hear you hear Richie's side of the story, but you also hear uh, Blaine Tringham's side of the story. He was the trumpeter in the orchestra that night, and he has a slightly different take on what happened uh, that night. But one of my favorite stories is, is from a place that's not so well so remembered, uh, a place called the Zanzibar, Club Zanzibar, that was down on 1129 Howe Street. And um, it, prior to that, it had been a place called Diamond Gyms. Uh, prior to that, it was a place called The Torch. And uh, topless wrestling. It, it, there was, there was, yeah. They, it had been, a, it had been a showcase cabaret, but by 1971, it changed into a strip bar, uh, basically there. And on a night uh, in, in no, this is you know, night uh, is about 19. This is 40 years actually, probably the anniversary of it. Uh, where we're at now, there was a shooting at the at the club. What had happened was is that it was a Monday night. There were a few people hanging around the bar. It was right at the end of the night. People had noticed a certain one particular person looking a little strange because they had a fake mustache and a, and a uh, and, and glasses on uh, and, a, and a wig and uh, obviously disguised, but they were having a drink by themselves alone at a table and nobody bothered them. Just at the end of the finale of, of the stripper on stage, when she was doing her final you know big reveal, I guess taking her taking her bra off or something, and there was a live band playing to her you know bumps and grinds. The drummer did a big fill. 
and hit the symbols to a big finale. And just at that time, timed perfectly, this guy got uh, the guy in the in the in the wig got it from his table, walked up to the cigarette machine nearby another table, and sort of hid partly behind it, pulled out a gun, and shot somebody at a table in the head and killed them. Uh, and it was just time with the drum rolls, drum you know, uh, fill crescendo. So when the gun went off. A lot of people thought it was just the drummer that had hit it. It was, uh, and and the guy turned around and walked out of the place. By the time people figured out what had happened, the the assailant was as outside the door. By all counts, it was a professional hit. Um, I get into the book about who that person was, how it's still uh, an unsolved homicide that's still on the rolls of the of of the uh, of the police department homicide squad. It's just a fascinating, strange story that happened uh, then that's that's kind of been forgotten. Caller, any other questions for Aaron Chaman, author of Vancouver After Dark? I, I guess uh, Sammy Davis also used to stay at the penthouse, didn't he? He did, yes. The, uh, you know, when he was in the Will Maston trio with his father and uncle, pre-Sammy Davis Jr. years, essentially, uh, he was involved, um, uh, you know, they weren't making tons of money then, and the family, the Filipponi family said, well, you should just, you know, stay with us. So, you know, the family dinners yeah. with the Filipponi family were had three special guests, you know, eating the eating the spaghetti and meatballs that night on, on nights, and, and they stayed they stayed in the club in a, in a, in a, in a, in a room upstairs there when the, to save money from um, from paying a hotel. So, uh, it's funny, when I, when I interviewed Ross Filipponi, he talked about when he was on, the, he happened to be in Las Vegas when Ocean's Eleven was being uh, was being, the original with Frank Sinatra, of course, and they were filming a scene in a casino, and, and Ross happened to come in and see Sammy Davis Jr. And just right during a take, Ross yelled, "Hey, Sammy, it's me over here!" And and you know the camera director said, "Shut that guy up! What doesn't he know we're making a movie here?" And Sammy turned around and saw that it was Ross Filipponi and said, "Everybody, we're taking five and ran over and hugged him." And a lot of people, you know, in, in the casino who just thought it was some idiot in a you know a Hawaiian shirt, some tourist trying to get Sammy's attention. Turns out they were you know oh geez that's you know he knows the guy. This is legitimately a friend of his. And so. as I mentioned, Sammy was also at Walter's house. At yes, the and, and, house. and at, at Izzy Walter's uh, uh, house as well. Izzy's, 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 yeah, Izzy's uh, was was uh, was another place. The, the Sammy Davis Jr. was in and out of town so much uh, at Izzy's at the penthouse. Uh, at the Palomar, um, he was a he was a real touring dog, and toured all over the you know. By the time that that he became known widely in North America, was 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 very well known and whatnot. Well, thanks very much, caller. You can read about more in, Lick, in Liquor Lust and the Law about that. There's so, so much more of that in, in that book too. Your yeah, other book, right. yes, yeah. yeah. Well, well thank, thanks a lot. Thank yeah. you, caller, and do do loot do. Dude, and I uh, live next door to Paul Chapman, but I've never seen him. <laughs> How about that? Well, there we go. <laughs> i got to say hi to Paul. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. And we are still speaking to Aaron Chapman, author of Vancouver After Dark and Liquor, Lust, and the Law. You got it. And the Clark Park Gang, the last gang in last town. Last gang in town, which just got optioned for a TV series, uh, I should say. I... I uh, I, I, it, we, it's, it's. AK, you got some. It, well, it's, it's. I don't want to say it one way or the other, but it's. Uh, uh, they're looking. It, it, the, the producers are now looking for a, you know, a, a, a network that might be interested and whatnot. But they're, uh, they're. Who knows? We might see a last gang in town TV Congratulations. show. Congratulations! Thank you for that. The Skunk Club. The Skunk Club. Oh yes, the lady. The after uh, before it was the Metro. Uh, the Skunk Club was uh, was Izzy's. Um, that that club. Izzy's had a really long history. By the by, the time Outlaws and the Metro came around, which probably would be more in the in the memory of many sort of younger Vancouverites, the uh, the Metro, of course, burned down um, in February nineteen eighty nine, I believe nineteen ninety around then. Um, 
And uh, sadly, there was a woman that was found in the fire that had happened. She locked herself in the bathroom, oddly enough. Very strange case, but um, th- it, was, it was the Metro that had burned. And prior to that, it had been called the Outlaws. Prior to that, it was called the Skunk Club. Prior to that, it was, it was Izzy Strip City. And prior to that, it was Izzy Supper Club. So sometimes when you go to these places, like, for instance, Love Affair, um, uh, many of these buildings were different clubs over the years. Love Affair in 1966 was the King of Clubs, a Gary Taylor's run place. Later, the Purple Steer. Later, the Garage. So it, each one having its own different kind of music. So, you know, different eras and different people in Vancouver all experienced, you know, uh, this, some of these places, but under different names, when they were under different names. Of, of the business. Metro was kind of interesting. Like, they bust up girls from Bellingham? Well, there was a thing that, uh, that there was a uh, obviously they had put some program in because the drinking age in in Vancouver and pardon me in British Columbia being nineteen, uh, where it was twenty one across the border. I mean, heck, you still see that today. There are people that come up, you know, on a weekend uh, to 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 party up here and whatnot. It seemed it used to happen a little bit more back in the day. Or maybe people don't travel so much for that, but uh, but I, I geez, I remember seeing that kind of happening. You'd, there'd be a bunch of American boys or girls you'd meet at some uh, at some club that were all in by you know there were like 20 of them and they all kind of moved around together you know like yeah it was that was a thing that was uh, that used to be, seem to be pretty common and used to be sort of organized obviously the clubs knew they could make some money uh by sending down a bus and getting you know driving everybody up and driving everybody back so it was it was probably a fairly safe night for all these people too you also interviewed ziggy sigmund from slow yes and slow shut down the metro they when did they they shut down the metro at, at playing there one night? I think one night they shut it down because it was so crazy. It was like so crazy, crazy in there. punk rock. Yeah. yeah. Well, God, God knows that slow. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, the the trail of uh, the trail of uh, disruptive clubs and venues you know are 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 in their wake and they also did band. a week at the penthouse what was that and that like? was amazing that's a band sl- playing for a week at the penthouse they, they did ten when days is, when is the last time they a did, band played that they, long they at the did penthouse? ten nights at the penthouse a couple of years back and that was I emceed uh, a few of those nights and those were so great um, the shows were great it sounded. It's up in the, the, the top floor. Um, you know, now it's operated by Tyrant Studios in connection with the Penthouse. They have you know, comedy on, and jazz on weekends there. But that space, the slow took it over. And, and you know, credit to Tom Anselmi and the rest of the guys for pulling that off. I, I didn't think they could do it. But it was also, you know, I know people that kind of made, you know, went on multiple nights. And there was always something different for the opening. I interviewed an exotic dancer by the name of Molly Malone, Molly Meow. Very sweet girl, a front pal of mine. We had some great sort of conversations. It's kind of like an opening act, kind of like a live interview on stage. And then the band came on, or or there was some other uh, there were some other acts and stuff like that. So it was a real that was a that was an amazing uh, uh, ten days at that club for sure. You also cited a lot of times Becky Ross from UBC. Yes, I uh, uh, Becky uh, is a professor out here at UBC, a feminist professor. I think her specific uh, uh, shingle reads, and uh, she, of course, had written a great book called uh, "A Burlesque West," and uh, had uh, had some interviews in there. And I, um, I quote her. She cited in, in in a couple of things. I disagree with her actually uh, on a couple of uh, things that she made, but um, I get into that in the book, and I, and I explain my reasons why I think we have differing opinions on on particularly when it comes to the. Hard Harlem Nocturne um, uh, club that was a club down on Hastings Street, uh, but but she's a great uh, her book's great and I do I I, I, I certainly uh, recommend it. Now speaking of the Harlem Nocturne, it was rated 107 times in two months. 
That's in 1967, a, like what was it like? A club getting raided 107 times in two months? <laughs> well, there was a. Uh, uh, you have to to speak about that. You really have to talk about the era of bottle clubs in Vancouver. You know, the idea of you and me going out and let's go out for a beer at a place afterwards, and uh, you know, after this, and we'll you know hang on and talk. You, you could really only do that more recently in Vancouver history because it was really only only until the 1960s that clubs, nightclubs, actually got a liquor license. You know, from the, and I'm not talking, this isn't Prohibition era times of the 1920s and 30s or anything like that. This operated in Vancouver for years. So what happened was, is that you were forced to quote unquote brown bag it and you'd have a bottle in your jacket and you'd, there'd be a teapot maybe on the table and you could buy some ice or some mix from the club owner, but you would pour, you know, your drink into that teapot. And as, as long as that liquor wasn't seen, uh, that was the key. What happened would be is the Vancouver Police Department would send out the dry squad, these dry squad raids where they would go from club to club and they would make sure no one was drinking in a nightclub. It seems preposterous, of course, by today's standards, but that's what it was. And it really wasn't until the late 1960s. Of course, people's social mores were changing. Uh, people wanted to have cocktails now. That You could still you could drink in, in beer parlors. That was the whole thing in Vancouver. There were, there were beer parlors, and it was sort of 10 cents a glass, pretty cheap beer. Um, you could certainly have a great time with them because, you know, for 10 cents a, a beer, you, everybody, you know, everybody can have a good time on that kind of budget. But uh, that was the system at work, and it really wasn't until actually, you know, the Commodore didn't get a liquor license until 1969, 70. Um, you know, the Penthouse didn't get a liquor license until, uh, interestingly enough, until it turned uh, 19 in 1968. Uh, uh, so there was. It's interesting to think about um, uh, what that era was. So you know, many people were you know arrested for you know having liquor on them uh, and whatnot, and they and they had to they would have, they would have to appear in court. And if you didn't have money to pay the fifty dollar fine, you would serve three days in jail. Um, this went on for years in Vancouver. Club owners were fined. People were fined. Eventually, the appetite. Uh, for, for, you know, the cocktail lounges and people having a much different, sort of more mature attitude, you know, about this. There was a groundswell of activity, and it was really fascinating that it was organized by the BC Cab Rainers Association. Joe Filipponi from the Penos was the head of that organization, and uh, um, a number of other club owners were a part of it too, but Joe really led the charge on that. So it, it, they fought to change some of the liquor laws in the province. Of course, by the late 60s, even Ralph Booth, who was the chief constable of the Vancouver Police Department then, was saying, listen, my guys are better used on other things. And even the police were saying, let's get lice- let's get these places licensed and let's, you know, be able to stop raiding clubs because our police are better used somewhere else, you know. But uh, a lot of people say that that era was, was almost better because the clubs could stay open until 6 in the morning. Once they got licensed, they had to st- they had to close at 2. You know, some of these places basically were kind of being run as after-hours places where anything went. And uh, once the licenses came in, yes, you could have a drink and then you no longer get arrested or fined for being for drinking in a place like that. But they also kind of had to conform and they had to be a little bit more regular. Was this unique to Vancouver? Uh, it was, there were certainly, you know, not some of the th- same things were, were happening in other provinces in Canada at the time. Almost some of the changes happened at different times. Uh, Quebec always kind of went their own, their own way. Uh, but it was, it was very much the case in, in, uh, in, but it, it, it's by no means each province had their, had the same, uh, you know, changed their laws at the same time either. And we're speaking to Aaron Chapman, author of Vancouver After Dark, a brand new record Book. Historical record of, of, of Well, it's a brand new record of Vancouver Clubs. It is, yeah. I'm I'm very proud of it and I I, I thank the good folks at Arsenal Press and my publisher for uh, for putting it out. And it's available in bookstores uh, all across BC, available across Canada, and the book launch party uh, uh, November twenty eighth, coming up next week. 
right here in the book, we have the Moon Glow Cabaret yes. in 1966. Credit City of Vancouver Archives, SVA 780335. But that looks suspiciously like a Fred Herzog photo. It does, doesn't it? It, it? it really feels like the, it was. it's actually a Vancouver Archives photo. Um, that's on page 75 of the book if you're following along at home. Um, and uh, the Moonglow was only open for a little while. Um, uh, and uh, Tommy Chong's old band, uh, The Shades, uh, played there. Um, and there's uh, a poster. Rob Frith has a poster. Yeah, and uh, but it was a, it was a small little place. But the fo- that photo of of, uh, of the Moonglow is so evocative. Um, I really wanted to, to showcase in the book, and I'm glad we had a chance to stick. Did it in Fred there. Herzog ever go to clubs? You know, he he was al- almost all his photos appear to me to be sort of in outdoor situations. I see, you know, there, there's some interiors that he has at the P and E. Yeah, you know, but almost all of them are are, are outdoor s- set, aren't they? If he did go to clubs. Uh, I can't think of any photos offhand that necessarily that he did interior. I know he's got some interiors or some barber shops and things like that, but I don't think I, I've, I've, I, there's any um, nightclub pictures of. Him. There's certainly you know other people that did have some pictures. Um, I'm really, I'm really happy that we were able to find some photos of the inside of the bunkhouse and uh, some of the other clubs uh, and whatnot. Or if they didn't have uh, pictures of them, we have some posters or some promotional material from. So. In a way, those those uh, images really help a book come alive like this. Aaron, could you please explain the Shanghai Junk Building, the booth-to-booth telephones, and the torch telephone night? Well, that's uh, almost two different things. The Bayside Lounge down at uh, Denman and Davey, uh, Vancouverites of a certain age may recall that the tables all had telephones at them, so you could call another table uh, from across the way and talk to the people over there. I guess at the time it was considered a, a kind of a novelty and a, and a nice sort of singles mixer. I guess if you were maybe having today, it, it, you know, now that we have a, a phone in our hands, uh, it, if your phone rang at your table, you'd consider it an interruption and you wouldn't hang it. You wouldn't pick it up. But back then it was considered kind of a fun thing and, and, and how it was an interesting way for people to meet. Or, or if you were maybe too nervous to go up to the table, you could call over and say, oh, my friend would like to meet you, something like this. And that happened at as I said, as I mentioned, the Bayside, but uh, it happened at the Shanghai Junk. Uh, there was it was there was a trend of that all over North America for a while of installing those sort of private booth phones where you, you know the, there would be the number next to the phone so you could see it from your table and call over and whatnot. Must have been rather noisy on some busy nights. You know, the phones ringing all the time. What about the Torch Telephone Night? Ah, that was a, that was a that was a theme night they had at the Torch Cabaret later the Zanzibar, eleven twenty nine House Street, and uh, and later Diamond Gyms, and it was a uh, this is kind of around the same time that the Bob Newhart record uh, one of the biggest comedy records ever uh, happened where of course you just hear uh, you know Bob's side of the conversation he's pretending that he's speaking to Abraham Lincoln or he's speaking to these historical figures and whatnot and uh, as, as a you know as a comedy routine at that at the club what they would do is is they would uh, there would be an impressionist off stage who would pretend to be Elvis or Fidel Castro and don't ruin <laughs> it for me. And and the person would there would be a person on stage, so you'd hear both sides of the phone call. And it was these sort of comedy sketches that that, that were done at the time, but uh, which would have been quite cutting edge and quite new, uh, but uh, fun stuff to imagine what it would have been like back then. The Log Cabin Inn. Yes, that's down uh, uh, down on Main Street, and uh, it's an interesting history with some of those Main Street clubs. Um, some of those buildings are still there, and they're quite old. Um, but the history of the log cabin was um, 
later on, the club was called the New Delhi, New Delhi Cabaret, at 544 Main Street. And but in the original place, the log cabin in it, it was a black club uh, known as a, where uh, where jazz music would be. Um, so that building has some of these buildings have a really long history, and there's, some of them are still there. As I say, if you walk by five four four Main today, I don't know what's upstairs. You can still see the. I talked about this about Tom, with Tommy Chong. You can still see the speakers on the walls, and there's a light on up there. Somebody's using it as a studio or a residence. I'm not sure, but um, uh, it's interesting that these, some of these places are still there, but they're they're no longer a nightclub or something like this. Buddy Knox lived in Vancouver too. The he Purple did. Steer. He ran the Purple Steer. Later, uh, that building at twelve seventy five Seymour later becomes uh, Love Affair, of course. Um, and it was a country music bar as the Purple Steer in the seventies. Then, yeah. Nudity is a theme in some of your books, isn't it? <laughs> the Ladybirds. <laughs> the Ladybirds. Oh yes, and and well, you know, the, the, when you hit the nineteen sixties from the Penthouse book. From the Penthouse book, there were sure. like a topless rock and roll band, the Ladybirds. Yeah, the, the Ladybirds, amazing. Yeah, and, and they were from what Sweden. What is going on here? There is some nudity. As well. at, the, at the bunkhouse, and this is an amazing photo uh, that, in the book that we unearthed from the. Uh, I want to thank John, John Mackey at the Sun for finding that one. At the bunkhouse, which was a folk music club, they featured which uh, we played, which the we played from. earlier. Yeah, we they featured uh, topless waitresses. Uh, there for a while. Now you have to imagine this being a folk club, an acoustic club. This wasn't a sort of a, you know exotic you know uh, strip bar and like that by that we'd imagine this kind of stuff today at. You know, see, so there's a waitress there, you know, with a basket of chicken and fries with her you know breasts out and whatnot. And I'm sure you know she's got a smile on her face. I'm sure there were some nights there that it was. Oh, God, it must have been terrible, but I'm sure she made a bit of extra money for things. You know, maybe she appreciated the, the, the but some of it, I know some people look at that photo and say, that's the saddest photo I've ever seen in my life, and other people who get a chuckle out of it. And I guess depending on who you are, maybe your age, I don't know if that, that factors into it, but uh, it's an interesting, it's interesting they had that, and, and while... There was a certain period at the time in the mid-1960s where Vancouver uh, bylaws were wrestling with, you know, full nudity on stage, where it, before it had just been pasties in a G-string. Uh, you know, the Copenhagen Cafe down on uh, Main Street, you know, featuring uh, exotic entertainers, that club run by Rick Ciarnello, now the spokesman, media spokesman for the Hells Angels. Uh uh, one of the, you know some of these clubs were the first clubs to, to show nudity that way, uh, and the, but the bunkhouse didn't have it on stage. They had it as the waitresses that were moving around. Eventually, this, the city told Stork that he had to change, and and they wore kind of see-through tops instead. And winding up here with Aaron Chapman, author of Vancouver After Dark, a book all about Vancouver clubs, makes a great Christmas gift. The windmill, <laughs> people can see the windmill. It still exists yes. on Granville Street, 13000 a month if they want to rent it. It was a punk club, though, Midwell. It, it was a punk club. It, it had long been a, a little 13000 a month. It's at 1047 Granville Street. It's, uh, there's a, there's a, it's covered up with posters now, and the building looks like it's going to, who knows what the condition is like behind it. And I don't think any, any business could probably afford to run a business in there unless they were got it you know I, I, to make that kind of rent and that's a sort of a that's what we get into sort of in the last section of the book you know the the real estate in in Vancouver was of course so expensive that some of these the land where these clubs were were more value to be as condo buildings i mean the where the starfish room uh, was previously the quadra club uh, previously where you know the big easy at one point um, a few different names over the years. You know, that's a condo now. Richards on Richards uh, is a condo. Interesting enough, where Graceland's cl- club used to be, that's a condo now called the Grace. And the name and Grace, of and the name of that club, interesting enough, can com- be revealed. Can be revealed for the first time in the book. It's a tip of the hat to Grace McCarthy. I would have never guessed, but Vince Alvaro, who was the club owner of that place, told me that in 1986 when they opened it. 
Everybody told him he wasn't going to get a liquor license. But he was friends with Grace McCarthy's son. Grace McCarthy, for those who don't know, a very well-known social credit cabinet minister uh, in, 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 in British Columbia. And, uh, you know, of a conservative party, for those of you who don't know what social credit is, look it up. Uh, so the people that were dancing there on E! and having a wild time had no idea that they, uh, you know, owed Grace McCarthy thanks because Grace went to bat for Alvaro and his uh, companions that were putting the club together, and she helped get him the liquor license. Revealed, revealed in your book. Revealed in the book for the first time. And, I, and, and, and Vince says that. He, could, he feels okay to tell that now because not only uh, Grace has passed on, but her son is, is unfortunately no longer with us. And I book. wanted to play this record in oh, honor the, and, of it. And, in honor of it, the, the, uh, the Dixieland uh, Express Jazz Band featuring... Claude Richmond, if those of you of a certain age may remember, Claude Richmond, who was the Minister of Tourism. I think he was a Minister of Transportation in British Columbia at one point on, but he plays the trumpet solo in the Dixieland Express Jazz Band single that, unfortunately, the album is a little bit warped, that we can't play it. But, but, we, but, have you, been, but we have it in hand here. We have amazing. also been tweeting out lots of pictures yes, from your book. Yes, on your, on your Narver Twitter ca- account, uh, which I've been retweeting. And uh, they're kind of warped, the pictures. They're warped. Some of the, you know, yeah, some of these these these. Posters and some of these uh, concert were uh, posters were you know kept in closets, kept in an old file cabinet or something like that. In many cases, and preserved uh, in your book. Uh, and yeah, and and we're but we're frayed at the edges and whatnot. We've tried to we've tried to present them as cleanly as as we can, and, and we've scanned them at very high resolution. So in some cases, you know, there's a there's a favorite photo I have, <coughs> probably a favorite poster I have that's early in the book of a Jerry Colonna appearance um, at the Palomar, and that was a poster that was on the front of a Vancouver streetcar. And the colors of it are so vibrant. Uh, that's because in the you know the rain of Vancouver, that poster would have stood out as it passed by you on a streetcar on the street, which is a, a fun way to think about some of these things. What was the windmill like? Steel floors? Steel <laughs> floors at the windmill? What was the alley like of the windmill? Was there a lot of glue <laughs> sniffing at the windmill? <laughs> it sure sounds like it. It was a pretty rough place. By the 1970s, it, it had been a, it had been a couple of different uh, rock and roll clubs, and even I think a uh, a, uh, a Japanese restaurant slash cabaret uh, at one point. But uh, by the um, the as the uh, it was interesting. It hit at a certain time because before the Smiling Buddha became the epicenter for Vancouver punk rock, the windmill was kind of present for a little while as a place to go. As as the clubs and and were. were uh, st- starting to open themselves up t- for a little bit for punk rock, uh, they were one of the sort of first places that that had some shows, and I don't know. I tried very much to try and research what the building had been, because Bob Pedersen, a bass player in town, <coughs> excuse me, talks about uh, the steel floor that was there, and uh, uh, and so it's interesting to think about. You know, sometimes that what was left over of the previous business plays a role in what was there, but for some reason there was a there was a hard steel floor there, and one night. Um, uh, a roommate of his brought in some uh, uh, some friends to a uh, Subhuman show, I think it was that night, or DOA it might have been, and uh, uh, they couldn't hear the show, but they could feel it coming through their feet, and they really liked that. And that's one of the fun anecdotes in the book. The Clash also visited the windmill. They did. On, just in uh, January 1979, when they got into town, they got into town, I think, a day or two early. And the night before their famous appearance, January 31st, 1979, at the Commodore Ballroom, which was the uh, North American debut of The Clash, and uh, they, uh, they came to catch uh, the rabbit at the windmill that night. And uh, uh, I know I ta- that's a little, some of that story is a little bit in the, in the Commodore book. Another club... Involved with punk is a smiling Buddha. Mm. Is there anything left of the smiling Buddha now that goes back to the days of the original smiling Buddha? Well, you know that basic 
interior of the building, I mean, it had been closed for years, as people may remember. You know, it was, of course, recently, you know, the, the Smiling Buddha is, is in the book, even though uh, it was one of the, you know, most of the clubs in, in the book are all places that are now defunct. And sadly, I, it was almost a premonition, it seems like. Uh, the SBC restaurant, the skateboard place that was at the Buddha, now is uh, um, a place that is has just shut down. So sadly, some of the stuff... You know, keeps happening uh, and whatnot, but that they, you know, they had to really gut that whole place and get all the junk that had been out there. I talk about a little bit of the book and and some of the stories of those guys when they first set that up. But I think that place is going to come back. Somebody else is going to move in there, hopefully, and maybe make a goal. But who knows? And thank you, Jim Bescott. Rest in peace, oh, from the young yes. Canadians, for suggesting. Yes, and Art Bergman talks about that. Some of the, how the the Buddha came to be the place, and and uh, it was because of Bescott had played there and some other bands, and they thought they'd be able to have a be able to try it out, and uh, yeah, interesting history. Now, winding up here, Aaron, I looked in the index for your book, and I didn't see Dirty Dick and the Trojan Test Pilots, who played many a time at the Lunatic Fringe. Oh my gosh, yes. the uh, That building in, in the, with Lunatic Fringe, later a, a strip bar called the Uranus Lounge, which used to incite laughter from anybody that drove, went by it. That building's still there. It used to be a Starbucks uh, most recently, and it's vacant now. But way back when, it was the original Pig and Whistle in town, um, and the Pig and Whistle, which li- most people remember, its Cordova Street location at 15 Cordova, um, when it was around through the, the 80s and 90s, actually gets a, 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 some some featured attention. And I'm glad it does because it's a chance. It's not a place that people would maybe immediately think that was important in Vancouver nightlife. But Daphne O'Sullivan. A bit of a legend, unsung legend in town, uh, and quite a character features in that, as does the late Robert Ford from a great band called the Stoders, which I was a tremendous fan of. And Robert, unbeknownst to me, and until I started interviewing people like John Collins for the New Pornographers, talks about how much of an influence uh, and how cool it was that that his band was at the time playing. The Martini Brothers. The Martini Brothers, yeah. And they eventually kind of morphed into the Stoders. Sort of, yes. Yeah, so, and yeah. you were at that time playing in the Town Pants or Real no? McKenzie's? I was, I was, I was just. It was, it was pre-Real McKenzie's for me, uh, and I was just uh, one of the one of the young guys kind of hanging out at the bar watching uh, Robert and uh, his uh, his fellow musicians play there. And there was there was a real kind of uh, it was a little bit of a rock school, you know, like down there. And 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 those guys could kind of just play anything, and they were so much fun to be around that people. Later on, I, I you know I got to know John later, but I, and I didn't know him at the time. I must have been in there, one of the other people in there at the time, and uh, just didn't know him. But it's interesting some of the people that that come through these rooms, even if they're not playing at the time when they're younger and just getting into the scene. Uh, sometimes they're showing up in these places too. So and it's now a Tacofina. It's now the Tacofina, yes, down there, and and people in Tacofina have no idea uh, what it used to look like in there. I try to describe it a little bit in the book. Uh, and Rob Dayton did a great description of it, which I uh, I quote him in the book uh, in this too. So, 86th Street, the Rage, the Harbor Events Center. What has changed? Was eventually a long time ago the Flying Club. Yes. What has changed? What is it the same? The uh, well, you know, the the uh, Expo, the 86th Street Music Hall, the Flying Club was a separate place. Uh, there were three clubs down there. Um, the third, there was the Expo, there was 86th Street Music Hall, the Flying Club, and Gosh, one more. I can't. I can't. Uh, name was on the tip of my tongue, but Expo eighty six. Uh, when that happened, there was some. They put some cl- new nightclubs down there, and the eighty six Street Music Hall arguably had some really amazing uh, performers over there. I remember seeing. I remember seeing some great shows over the years. There was this famous Ramon show, of course, that happened where the security grabbed a guy who had been, you know, kind of moshing, and the security guards down there. 
probably just weren't used to it. Very tragic. And they threw him out the front door where he hit his head and he sustained some brain damage. The lawsuit uh, in the wake of that was really the thing that shut the club down and also prevented a new club from going in there for some time because that debt hung over that building for a little while. But it's still there. So I get there. into that in the it's book. Still but, but it's, it's still there. It's still there. event center. Is still there anything left? They, they still do some events. I was just in there uh, uh, maybe last year or, the, or maybe a year and a half ago, and it's weird to walk in there because I certainly my memories of going in there in the early 90s uh, it's to see some shows. I saw a great show um, by Mr. Machine uh, in there. And uh, they, there was a, lots of different great bands that played there throughout the years, and it was um, it's still there, but it's... It's it's kind of on its last legs. I'm sure, I think the land has been uh, is is that land's due to be a condo uh, like so many other places in the in the near future. So. Well, thanks so much, Aaron, for coming out to Nardwar to Human Survey at Radio Show. There's so much more to ask you about the cruel elephant, Jane Goodall. Oh my gosh, that story! Yeah, when when uh, uh, Jane Goodall phoned in to the cruel elephant, saying that uh, elephants weren't cruel, and how dare they. Call the club uh, that. That story's in the book. Uh, and Johnny Depp getting kicked out Johnny of the pump Depp and the love affair. Getting getting thrown out of some bars while he was shooting 21 Jump Street here. Yeah, there's all sorts of fun anecdotes like that. And Bob Whitaker, Mudhoney's booking agent, naming the starfish. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, kid, you're going to be a star. No, you're going to be a starfish. And that's the that's the, 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 the origins, origins of the name of the starfish room. And Lou Blair was a co-owner of Club Soda? He sure was, yeah. Lou Blair, uh, there's a name that people might remember from back in the day. Big man, Big Lou, uh, pretty interesting guy. And drums only t-shirts. I love that you <laughs> showed that out. Well, that's a personal memory. The, the fun thing about working as the book is in the last you know, section of the book, got into years where I was going to clubs and I could remember some of these places. And I remember some of the people and what people sort of dressed like and whatnot. So whereas, you know, I'm, when I'm writing about clubs in the 1960s like the, or the 50s, a little bit before my time, I'm relying so much on newspaper reports and, and people who I've interviewed. But by the time the later stages of the book comes around, those are places I've been to. So I could kind of st- weave in some of my own memories of, of who was, what people looked like and how the, the certain uh, uh, crowds that, were, that would uh, be attracted to some of these places. And you are Aaron Chapman, author of Vancouver After Dark, the wild history of... Wild history of the city's nightlife. And Aaron, your book doesn't really cover the New York Theater, the Nappy Dugout, no. or the Hastings Community Center, or nope. Acadian Hall, nope. or the South Wall, nope. or the Latiner Community Center. Nope. You Selling had to Hall. be selective, didn't you? I did. Well, you know, th- th- you were getting into all ages places as well as after hours places with that, and I had to, I was going to include- And dives. And the, yeah, I was going to, and, and it wasn't, the book really focuses on places that were that had live entertainment. Or had entertainment in general in some kind, because I could, it would it, the book would be nine hundred pages if I were going to write about every bar that was ever in the history. You know, the in world. The, in the, the world, I, the, I, you know what the world was is is the that's going to appear in a next project because uh, that was a place that was uh, Playpen South and the history of the Playpen South. If anybody ever wants to talk about that or has some great plan plans, please seek me out because I'm working on something that has to do with that right now. The Dufferin Club, the, the Bomb. Yeah, some of the some of the gay clubs that were around then were really, uh, uh, you know, they weren't on Davy Street; they were down on Seymour. Um, so, so it's interesting to look how things had changed and some of the, that had moved. But I was going to do a big section on, on, on some of the beginning of some of those gay clubs because they had their own entertainment. They had some cabaret entertainment, uh, drag shows and stuff like that. And I thought they were spot. But I, as soon as I started to get into it, I realized it kind of merits its own history and maybe its own uh, book or another project of its kind. So that's going to be a future thing. Um, but if you were at those some of those places, I'd love to talk to you. 
Seek me out. Atlantis, an oxygen bar. Yes, that is in the book, Atlantis. I, I used to live down from there, and I remember every night at, at, at closing time, there'd always be two or three police cars uh, having to deal with the fights that were in that place. So uh-huh. right now, to end the interview, yes. we're going to play some Little Daddy and a Bachelor. Oh, wow, Tommy's And band. we actually got a tweet from... Tommy Chong. Tommy Chong. Could you explain what's going on here? We're going to play some Junior's Jerk by Little Daddy and a Bachelor. Little Daddy and the... With ba- Tommy Chong on guitar. You yes. Can hear his guitar work. Yeah, a lot of people. I, I talked about this a little bit earlier in the show. That uh, you know, everybody knows Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong. Uh, you know, biggest comedy duo of the 1970s, I would think. But in the 1960s, he was here as a musician, as a club musician, not only as a really one of the major sort of players in town, but also a guy who ran clubs as well with his brother Stan, who just passed away. Uh, 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 I think maybe last year it was. Um, but. Little Daddy and the Bachelors sort of evolved out of the Shades, which were previously the Calgary Shades, and uh, uh, later become Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. But uh, uh, Tommy it was a real uh, sort of mover and shaker here in town. And of course, the scene was smaller and whatnot. There were probably less people involved with it. But what's fascinating is not only was Tommy in one of sort of the working bands of that time playing almost every night of the week, in other situations, he was hiring people to play in some of the other clubs that he ran over the years. And the chapter that focuses on Tommy is called Four Clubs in a Chong, which is a little bit of a tip of the hat to his, his band name, which we probably won't say on, on, on the radio here. So, And thank you also, Isaac, for lending us Thanks, Isaac. your show. We ran overtime here. To talk about the Vancouver club scene, because there was a lot of clubs that we didn't, like the Red Gate. The Red Gate continues the, on. Oh, the Red Gate continues on. I would have loved to have, uh, one of my favorite places, the old Barolina, uh, whatnot. There's lots... There's lots of places, and there's new clubs now. There's the clubhouse uh, just down off first. There's, um, you know, sadly, 333 just uh, ended. But there's there's new clubs now, and, and people who say, oh, there's, you know, Vancouver's no fun. I tell you, there's always been something going on. Maybe just needed a friend to tell you where that was, and maybe in a way this book sort of tells you in hindsight where that was hell happening. So Why should people care about Vancouver after dark? I'll tell you something, because the reason is, you know, sometimes we were very sort of spoiled here in Vancouver. There are lots of shows that... that uh, came to Vancouver and lots of talent of Vancouver that necessarily wouldn't then, tr- you know, keep touring east to ca- you know Calgary and Edmonton and Saskatoon, Regina. They would turn around and head back down the coast. You know, so there was a really sort of special thing happening on here with the nightlife scene and the entertainment scene and some of the people that were that were here that were living here playing. <coughs> a tune up for Vegas. Tune up for Vegas. So it's a, it's a really uh, we're, it's a really interesting history and some of the people that were involved in in uh, in the city and making this city fun. Anything else to add, Aaron? You can get a hold of me on Twitter or Instagram, or you can find me, uh, uh, get a hold of me, uh, www.aaronchapman.net. If you want to track me down, or if you have a great nightclub story, I'd love to hear from you. So here's Tommy Chong on guitar, Little Daddy, and a Bachelor. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Aaron, and do-do-loo-do. (laughs) Do-do. I think actually, Aaron.
I think, actually, Aaron, yes. because Vancouver is so complicated and there's so many bands, we actually <coughs> played, just for a second, and amongst all this craziness and there's so much to fit in here, we played a bit of the Villains, oh, a villains. ska band who played the Metro. The Metro. The Villains were one of the great sort of, maybe the Vancouver's first ska band. Uh, specifically, we, we had some reggae and calypso stuff. Interesting, I think before that, but the villains were great, uh, great early '80s, uh, maybe late '70s. They actually would have started, maybe, but um, you know, Vancouver's own madness and specials. Uh, it was great to have a band uh, that was doing. I wonder. I'd love to talk to where the villains are today. Uh, they must be around. And uh, but uh, I'd love to hear a villains track. Uh, so w- we did play a bit of awesome. villains. By, I, I think I I wanted to fit them in. Yeah. Uh, but here actually is Tommy Chong. Ah, Tommy. Here we go. Here I think is we hope is we Tommy have the technology Chong on guitar on guitar. Little daddy the bashers. <laughs> 